0: Welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You'd never guess from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And I do a thing in the city it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history... And I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about. Is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, Today's episode is all about one of the most swashbuckling and charismatic figures from Scottish history. James Graham, the Marcus of Montrose, the great Montrose. Montrose won a series of brilliant, almost impossible victories over the Covenanters in the years 1644 and 1645 that is remembered as the Year of Miracles, such a run of near impossible victories wouldn't be seen again in British history until Leicester won the league in 2016. The Year of Miracles, that pitted Protestants against Catholics, McDonald's against Campbell's, Royalists against Covenanters, Rangers against Celtic, Colleen Rooney against Rebecca Vardy, Montrose, he made himself Master of Scotland, but like Alex Salmond, it all came crashing down around him. Not because he was grabby or anything like that, but because his royalist cause it lost popularity in Scotland. And unlike Ruth Davidson, when Montrose became less popular in Scotland, he didn't have a, a peerage in the House of Lords to fall back on. Montrose, he was subjected to a brutal execution, but was also given the most lavish state funeral ever seen in Scotland. He was given a spectacular funeral because the monarch felt bad about how he died. He was like the 17th century's Princess Diana Basically. Now, if this is the first time that you have listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, all right? I'm not going to lie to you, this is a podcast that is mainly Scottish history mixed in with a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time you have listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the start? All of the episodes, they go in chronological order. They all offer a bit of background in the one that follows it. They're all named as well, so you can jump in at like Mary Queen of Scots or William Wallace. Go through the back catalogue, basically, if this is the first time that that you've tuned in. Right, anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast. It's all about James Graham, the great Montrose. I do hope you enjoy it, have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! When Civil War broke out in England, both the English Royalists and Parliamentarians, they appealed to Scotland to intervene on their behalf, but there was a split in Scotland amongst those who had signed the National Covenant in 1638. Archibald Douglas, the Marcus of Argyll, he was head of a radical Presbyterian Kirk party who wanted to create a godly state in Scotland, a theocracy whereby policy was created based on the word of God. It didn't have the authority of a king and it was was a parliament that had the full authority of the state. Now, this was considered pretty extreme by 17th century standards, because what you've got to remember about the 17th century is that the monarchy was an actual job back then. You know, like the king had things that he was expected to actually do. It's not like nowadays, you know. And even then it would be considered extreme if we were to depose the queen in 2021, despite the fact that she would just continue to do fuck all. Argyle's extreme, godly, and fiercely nationalistic faction alarmed many of the Covenanters, including. James Graham, the Earl of Montrose. Montrose, he represented a more moderate faction of the Covenanters that were alarmed by Argyll's political and religious extremism. Montrose wanted to curtail some of the more arbitrary powers of the king to restrain the office of the monarchy, but not the person of the king. But, I mean, listen, regardless, neither the, the Marcus or of Argyll or Montrose had anything like the influence on the Westminster government that the Marcus of Rashford had. In August 1640 Montrose he led a score of nobles who pledged their support to the king by signing the Cumberland bond in Cumberland House in Dumbartonshire. The Covenanters were split between those who would join the war on the side of the parliamentarians and fight against Charles I and those who had signed the Cumberland Bond and supported the forces of King Charles. As usual, for some unbeknownst reason, it was expected that all Scottish people had to have an English team. It was the more extreme Presbyterian Kirk party under the direction of the Marquis of Argyll who held the reins of government and had the upper hand. When Charles the first had visited Edinburgh from August to November of 1641 in the aftermath of the Bishop Wars, Argyll actually had Montrose locked in Edinburgh Castle for the duration of the King's visit to stop any potential dealings occurring between the two. He was locked up for the duration of the monarch's visit to stop him getting up to no good. It's referred to as the Prince Andrew Rule. These days. In August 1643, the Scots Covenanters presented the English parliamentarians with the Solemn League and Covenant, which I talked about on the previous podcast, and it pledged military support to the parliamentarians in exchange for the implementation of Presbyterianism in England and Ireland. The Parliamentarians accepted, in principle, church unification with the Scottish Presbyterian Church, but many doubted their commitment. The Earl of Montrose suspected, rightly as it turned out, that the Parliamentarians were paying lip service to the Solemn League and Covenant in exchange for the military support they so desperately wanted from Scotland. In January 1644, a huge Scots covenanting army led by the veteran covenanting commander Alexander Leslie crossed the border into England to join the side of the English parliamentarians. It was an army of angry Presbyterians looking to smash up cities in the north of England and their team hadn't even made it to a European Cup final this time. Just a month later, in February 1644, Charles I made Montrose a Marquis and appointed him Lieutenant General of the Royal Forces in Scotland. The English Civil War had officially reached Scotland, and each side were big, powerful, divided by religion, each had their periods of success and victories, and everyone in Scotland was expected to support, or at least prefer, One to the other, and we then decided to model a professional football league in Scotland on that very premise. In March 1644, Montrose captured Dumfries with a small force of 2,000 men. It was Pretty straightforward because Stephen Doby wasn't playing for them. But little further progress was made. George Gordon the Marcus of Huntley, he launched a mini-royalist rebellion in the northeast, attacking the town of Montrose, but he quickly fled when a force led by Argyll marched north to put him down. It looked like the royalist campaign in Scotland had fizzled out after barely getting started. That was until the arrival of a giant and fearsome Scots-Irish adventurer Alistair Macula MacDonald. Macola Macdonald had fought bravely for the Irish Confederate forces who had successfully fought for Catholic self-governance in Ireland. He was the son of the Laird of Colonsy and a close kinsman of the Earl of Antrim where his family, the Dunnyveg Macdonalds, had lands. He was Scottish but he was fighting for Ireland. He was like the Aidan McGeady of his time. The Macdonald power and influence in the West Highlands and Islands had dissipated throughout the 16th and 17th centuries thanks to the incorporation of the Lord of the Isles title, the most powerful position in Tesco's, into the Scottish crown and the growing influence of the rival clan Campbell who now held many of the traditional Macdonald heartlands. Clan MacDonald had remained predominantly Catholic after the Reformation and Clan Campbell were Presbyterian. The Marcus of Argyle was head of Clan Campbell and McCola MacDonald despised Argyle even more than Montrose did. In Montrose's campaign he saw an opportunity to bloody Argyll's nose, win back Campbell lands for the MacDonalds all the while allowing him to rampage, pillage, destroy and kill as many Campbells and destroy as much Campbell territory as he could. In August 1644, Macaulay MacDonald landed with 2,000 battle-hardened MacDonald clansmen and Irish troops on the Ardmachan Peninsula and immediately started rampaging through Campbell territories of Argyll, burning, looting and slaying Campbells as they went. If it helps, I like to remember Macaulay MacDonald through the Lion King song, Akuna Matata, if you'll allow me. Macaulay McDonald gave Montrose military aid. Macaulay McDonald the Campbells he burned and slayed. It was his Campbell free philosophy. Macaulay McDonald. And now you won't be able to watch the Lion King without thinking about clan genocide. You are welcome. By, welcome, by the way. In late August 1644, Macola, MacDonald and Montrose's armies met up at Blair Rathal and it marked the beginning of one of the most remarkable military campaigns in British history The Year of Miracles. The Royalists now had an army headed up by two inspired military commanders with daring tactical skill. They were an unstoppable Celtic duo, the Jedward of the 17th century. Their first battle against the Covenanting Army came at Tippermuir, just outside of Perth. The the Covenanting Army was under the command of David Weems, Lord Elko, and he was equipped with thousands of men, cannons, and several hundred cavalry. Montrose had far fewer men, but his and Macdonald's men were experienced, professional and battle-hardened, whereas most of the Covenanting army was made up of inexperienced enlisted Campbells and volunteers. McCola Macdonald had developed a devastating military tactic in Ireland that would have a profound effect on the civil war in Scotland and on Scottish warfare throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, the famous Highland Charge. Infantry would... Get to within 100 metres of the enemy, fire off a single volley, drop their muskets and then charge at the enemy with their broadswords. Fire, fire a shot, run, then sword fight. It sounds more like the modern pentathlon, doesn't it? Elko's men immediately buckled when the mix of Highlanders and Irishmen came charging at them with their broadswords drawn. The only thing more terrifying than a group of Highlanders coming at you with their broadswords drawn would be Alex Salmond coming at you with his broadsword drawn. They were cut down savagely and Montrose rode triumphantly into Perth which he plundered or which his army then plundered for three days which is hard to imagine if you've ever been to Perth. I don't know what they were plundering after three full days, do you know what I mean? They must have resorted to taking the copper wire out of all the walls. A stronger covenanting force under the command of Argyll was approaching from the south so Montrose decided to leave Perth albeit with a large cache of weapons and munitions. Perth being the Glasgow of the 17th century. He headed for Dundee and demanded the town surrender. When the city burgesses there refused to surrender, instead of giving fight, Montrose then marched north to Aberdeen where he hoped to get support from the Marquess of Huntley. Montrose hoped Aberdeen would surrender because, I mean, they normally do when faced with a Scots-Irish side. But blocking his path to the city was a covenanting force led by Robert Balfour, Lord Balfour of Burleigh. Montrose, he sent a drummer and a messenger under a flag of truce to parley with the leaders of the covenanting army. The messenger was given a drink and the drummer boy was given a gold coin from an Aberdeen magistrate. But when the covenanters refused Montrose's terms, the drummer boy was shot in the back as he returned to the royalist lines. It was Aberdeen after all. you know I mean, nothing should be considered free up there. The boy was obviously expected to pay for the drink using the gold coin. you know, Montrose was so incensed by the killing, he ordered the immediate attack and gave permission for the city to be sacked. On the 13th of September 1644, the Royalist Army overcame the Covenanters in a matter of minutes in the Battle of Aberdeen. Aberdeen was soundly beaten by Montrose, which sounds less like a 17th century battle and more like a Scottish Cup upset what followed was a 3 day orgy of looting, raping and killing remembered as Black Friday as Montrose's army fought with the locals over half priced televisions The violence and killing of innocent Aberdonian residents would tarnish Montrose's reputation for chivalry and was an undoubted blot on the royalist cause in Scotland. From Aberdeen, McCola Macdonald departed to recruit more clansmen in the West Highlands. He was recruiting clansmen, like the head of the Proud Boys. This left Montrose with a much depleted force of only 1,500 men and danger was at hand as a much larger covenanting force under the command of Argyll was approaching from the south. Montrose left Aberdeen and for the following weeks his greatest concern was to outpace and stay ahead of the pursuing Covenanting army. Montrose's army arrived at 5E Castle near Tariff in Aberdeenshire on the 27th of October 1644. Assessing the castle as not being suitable for defence, Montrose dug in on a high piece of ground to the east of the castle. 5E Castle is one of Scotland's most beautiful castles. It's beautiful but useless at defending, like Cristiano Ronaldo. Montrose thought that Argyll was a five-day march behind him, and he was taken by surprise when the Covenanting army arrived the following day, having obviously chosen not to travel using Scotrail. Argyll had 2,500 men and at least 1,200 horses, compared to Montrose's 1,500 men and only 50 horses. For days, Argyll's army tried to dislodge Montrose from his defensive position, but they couldn't get him to leave. Montrose was like Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Montrose was just about able to fend off the sporadic attacks from Argyll over the two days. Eventually, lacking supplies, Argyll was forced to retreat south towards Aberdeen, giving Montrose the opportunity to escape. As winter approached, Argyll called off the pursuit of Montrose, and in November 1644, he retired to his home, the Campbell stronghold of Inverary Castle in Argyll. The Royalists were down, but not out. As we know, it takes more than racism and paedophilia to take down the royal family. I mean, it shouldn't, but it does. Montrose led his tired and hungry survivors to Bleyrathal, where they reunited with McCola Macdonald who reinforced the army with 5,000 men, mainly Macdonald's but also Maclean's from Mull, Stewart's from Appen and Fackerson's from Braemar. From Blair Athol, Montrose and Macdonald decided to launch a surprise attack on the Marquess of Argyle. They would attack Inverary Castle, the very centre of Campbell Heartlands. Argyle would never expect such a daring attack on his home, especially in December. Guides led Montrose's men through the mountain passes and into Argyle territory. Now Argyle, he was in Edinburgh when he heard of the Montrose advance and he gleefully returned to Inverary, expecting to find his enemy starving and frozen in the mountains like the puppy he had abandoned the previous Christmas. But far from starving and freezing, when Argyle arrived back at Inverary, he was informed Montrose's men were only a few kilometres away. Argyll... He left his clansmen to their fate. He escaped in a galley down Loch Fyne like a Presbyterian pirate, while the MacDonalds plundered Campbell lands, burning properties, and killing around 900 men of arms bearing age. After the frenzy of killing and looting was over, Montrose marched north, up the west coast, eventually arriving at the relative safety of the medieval fortress of Inverlochy at the foot of the Great Glen Way. From Inverlochy, some of the Highlanders they slipped off back home, resplendent with their plundered Campbell booty. They fucked off for the stuff they stole, like any good royal. From Inverlochy, Montrose set off up the Great Glen Way towards the Covenanting held Inverness. His army reached Culcuman (modern day Fort Augustus) when he learnt of a Covenanting force led by George Mackenzie, the Earl of Seaforth, advancing towards him from Loch Ness. They put the Earl of SeaWorld in charge as he was the only one that could, you know, control the monster. At the same time, Argyle had regrouped and made it to Inverlochy. So, Montrose, he was caught in a covenanting pincer move with Mackenzie's force coming down from him, down on top of him from Loch Ness, while Argyle came up behind from Inverlochy. Montrose once again did something completely unexpected. He went on the attack. On the evening of the 31st of January 1645, he marched southwest from Coolocky back down the Great Glen but over the mountain passes. His men traversed through knee deep snow, travelling 50 kilometres and 36 freezing hours in the height of winter. They were now right on top of Argyll's forces at Inverlochy, and on the morning of the 2nd of February 1645, Montrose's men appeared out of apparent thin air and attacked the astonished covenanting force at Inverlochy. They had come down the mountainside and attacked in the height of winter like the Grinch. Again Montrose's men were outnumbered and again his experienced battle-hardened troops were able to make the mostly conscripted Campbell men scatter. 1,500 covenanting soldiers were killed compared to only four men on the royalist side. It seems to me like these Campbells, they're actually pretty easy to defeat. You know, like, the Presbyterians are pretty easy to defeat when you have a decent leader, and not one whose idea of a surprise tactic in winter is going to Dubai. Once again, Argyle abandoned his men and fled in a galley, this time down Loch Eel, while the covenanting force under the command of George Mackenzie, who were advancing from Loch Ness down the Great Glen, Way towards Montrose, they hastily retreated back to Inverness. Montrose was now able to range the north and northeast at will. It was before the North Coast 500 had become so popular, so, you know, there was no 100-mile-long queue of camper vans. Aberdeen was occupied again, although spared the sacking it had received in September the previous year, Dundee and Breacham were occupied as well. The Covenanters realised now that they were in real danger of losing the civil war in Scotland and so they dispatched regiments from the Covenanting army fighting in England to reinforce opposition to Montrose and his wild and apparently unstoppable army. What Montrose had achieved had rarely been seen before in Scotland. He was able to bring the Highland clansmen together into a cohesive fighting unit. It was like Game of Thrones. you know. Montrose's army was made up of ginger and giants. In fact, you know what? Pasty white, aggressive and living in sub-zero temperatures. The Highlanders were probably more like the White Walkers than anyone else, but they weren't fighting for Charles I. The Highlanders weren't fighting for a king that they barely recognised the authority of. They were mainly fighting against the hated Marcus of Argyll and the Presbyterian Campbells. The civil war in Scotland was more of a war between Catholic and Episcopal Highland clans against the Presbyterian Campbells. It wasn't so much Covenanter versus Royalist. The war was essentially a large scale clan feud. Montrose's army was remarkable, but there were many in Scotland that resented the use of Irish and Catholic soldiers to slaughter Montrose's own Protestant countrymen. Montrose, after all, was a signatory of the National Covenant. Macdonald's butchering of Campbell's and the fallout of Black Friday in Aberdeen meant that many in Scotland feared Montrose more than they respected or supported him. But after the surprise attack at Inverlochy, Montrose and Macdonald were stronger than ever and what was left of the Covenanting army, reinforced by Covenanting regiments sent from England, marched north to try and put down Montrose's royalist resistance. The result would be one of the bloodiest battles of the war in Scotland, the Battle of Aldern. Aldern is a small village just outside of Nairn. On the evening of the eighth of May, sixteen forty-five, Montrose camped at Aldern with a force of seventeen hundred men, planning to push on to Covenanting-held Inverness the following day. A covenanting army around 4,000 strong assembled outside of Inverness, its commander-lieutenant-colonel Sir John Uri took a leaf out of Montrose's book and launched a surprise attack of his own, marching his men through the night in torrential rain to attack Montrose at sunrise. Travelling through torrential rain until you reach Montrose is also day three of a tour itinerary. Montrose was taken completely by surprise. He was only alerted to the attack thanks to the noise of the covenanting soldiers' muskets going off as they attempted to clear the powder from their barrel in preparation for their attack. Good advice for preparing for battle and also good advice, you know, if you're preparing for a third date. Macaulay and Montrose set up in defensive positions, the Irish troops taking the brunt of the covenant- covenanting attack, but they fell back in good order. When, when they ran out of ammunition, McCullough's men launched a brave counterattack, armed only with their broadswords. Montrose then launched an assault with his troops and cavalry, and the, the Royalist forces managed to win the day. Half of the Covenanting army, some 2,000 men were killed at Aldern as were around 200 Royalist troops. The remains of the Covenanting army retreated back to Inverness and Montrose marched further into Aberdeenshire trying to lure the Covenanting army to track him and give fight. After Aldern, McCola MacDonald once again departed west to recruit more clansmen like a Celtic Pied Piper. Montrose, he was able to lure the Covenanters to the village of Alford in Aberdeenshire. He did so by shouting, shape BAG IF YOU DIDNAY, a challenge that's impossible to ignore in Scotland. Montrose feigned a retreat and the Covenanting army under the command of General William Bailey went on the attack. This time both sides were evenly matched, there were about 2,000 men on each side. Montrose turned on Bailey's men as they crossed the River Don and after fierce fighting he managed managed to emerge victorious. The Covenanting army was devastated with around 1,500 men killed. Montrose, he had now eliminated any serious opposition north of the River Tay, you know, unless you count the Lib Dems in Orkney and Shetland. And when Alistair McCullough MacDonald returned with fresh Highland reinforcements, it was time for Montrose to set upon the central lowlands. There was only one Covenanting army remaining in the field after Montrose's victory at Alford. It was under the command of the experienced veteran Covenanting soldier William Bailey. The army consisted mainly of Campbell conscripts and reinforcements sent from England. Bailey's army was in Perth when Montrose got word that it was being reinforced by a thousand troops raised by the Earl of Lanark and 500 cavalry from the Duke of Hamilton. Montrose wanted to confront these forces individually before they had the opportunity to meet up. When Bailey heard of Montrose's plan to intercept, he marched south and the two armies met at Cullsouth on the 15th of August 1645. The Covenanting army marched 7,000, the Royalists around 5,000. Now, Bailey respected his opponent and took up a defensive position on high ground, encouraging Montrose to attack, because if you respect your opponent, then you defend. You know, unless you're Marcelo Bielsa. But tactical decisions in the Covenanting army were not made by military commanders, but by the Committee of Estates, the parliamentary committee that was running government affairs. The committee was headed by the Marcus of Argyll and consisted of prominent covenanting noblemen and Presbyterian ministers. Reckless, military decisions were being made by men who had little military experience and were way too overly influenced by God and ultra-nationalism. The Covenanters were the Americans of their time. The Committee of Estates demanded that Bailey attack. God said that they had to attack and, you know, also that they should build an ark. But the committee was concerned that if they didn't attack Montrose, he would be allowed to escape and remain at large. Bailey protested, but did as instructed, and predictably it was a disaster. The similar pattern of Montrose and Macdonald absorbing the initial attack and then launching their devastating Highland Charge resulted in 3,000 Covenanting troops dead. The last covenanting army left standing in Scotland was defeated. Montrose had eliminated all opposition in Scotland. He was like Nicola Sturgeon. Glasgow was spared the pillaging that Aberdeen had received, probably because, you know, there was less stuff there that was worth stealing, and Edinburgh was taken and its castle surrendered. Montrose set up royalist headquarters at Bothwell Castle in Lanarkshire and arranged the release of all royalist prisoners who had been languishing in covenanting dungeons. Mad to think, isn't it, there was a time when royals were locked up? Now the only dungeon you would expect to find a royal in would be a sex dungeon. But Montrose's hold on power was precarious. It was based on military success with no political weight behind it, because unlike in the 21st century, you actually required skilled, knowledgeable politicians to run the country in the 17th century. Montrose's victory at that came two months after the devastating Royalist defeat at Naseby that all but ended Royalist resistance in England. The Royalists, they were utter shite, but somehow were very successful in Scotland. They were like Jerry Cinnamon, I suppose. The Covenanting army was all but done fighting in England now and its experienced leader Major Alexander Leslie, returned to Scotland to deal with the apparently invincible Montrose. McCullough Macdonald he went back west after the Battle of Kilsyth to further terrorise Campbell territories and when his thirst for Campbell blood was finally quenched he returned to Ireland. McCullough Macdonald's father, Col Colchietta, had been taken prisoner at Dunyveig and he was executed in retaliation for Macdonald's atrocities against the Campbells. Now, obviously, executing people's fathers for their atrocities doesn't happen these days, but it is why they put Boris Johnson's dad on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. McCullough Macdonald returned to fight for the Irish Confederacy. His experienced Irish and Highland troops were split amongst the Leinster and Munster armies, and most were killed in the battles of in the battles of Dungans Hill and Nocknanis, where Macola MacDonald was killed himself in sixteen forty seven. Montrose's army, minus MacDonald, marched south in September 1645 to meet with royalist supporters in England. Montrose marched into the borders but didn't get anything like the royalist support that he had expected, which is strange, you know, because these days is the only part of Scotland where anyone gives anything close to even a minute fuck about the royals. On the 13th of September 1645 Montrose's army was camped near Selkirk at Philip Hall on the banks of the River Ettrick when he was attacked by Leslie in a surprise dawn raid. This time Montrose couldn't deploy his troops in time. They fought bravely but were defeated by Leslie's experienced troops who had come from campaigning in England. Montrose, he had to be dragged from the battlefield by his surviving officers. A slaughter followed the royalist defeat on the insistence of the Committee of Estates and the cohort of Presbyterian ministers who followed the covenanting army. All those who followed the royalist army, cooks, women, children, they were all slaughtered. God's work had to be seen to be done, and God seems to insist on innocent people getting killed quite a lot, doesn't he, although thankfully these days, extreme Protestants wouldn't want to see children murdered, just imprisoned and separated from their families. Most of Montrose's officers and closest associates were hanged by the vengeful Covenanters. For a year, Montrose went on the run and tried to regroup and reignite the royalist cause in Scotland, but it was to no avail. When Charles surrendered to the Covenanters at Newark in May 1646, the re- the king refused to call off Montrose, his only surviving chance of resurrecting the royalist cause, but eventually he was persuaded to order Montrose to disband. On the 2nd of June 1646, Montrose received a letter from the king that read, You must disband your forces and go into France. From there you shall receive my further instructions. This at first may justly startle you, but I do assure you that if, for the present, I should offer to do more for you, I could not do so much. This may startle you, but I need you to fuck off immediately, which is exactly how my girlfriend dumped me. Disband and relocate to France, like a UK-based business after Brexit. Charles agreed to sack Montrose, but only if he was allowed to escape abroad. It was the same deal that Celtic had with Neil Lennon. There was nothing left to fight for. On the 3rd of September 1646, disguised as a servant, Montrose set sail for Norway. Montrose spent four years in the courts of Europe where he was feted as a hero of royalist resistance. He was offered an appointment as lieutenant general in the French army and the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III awarded him the rank of field marshal. But Montrose remained devoted to the service of his king and trying to resurrect the royalist cause in the three kingdoms. He was getting offers from all across Europe but opted to remain at Tottenham sorry I'm getting Montrose mixed up with Harry Kane there when Montrose heard of Charles's execution in 1649 he retired to his bedchamber for two days completely overcome with grief which is fuck all compared to how we mourn royals in the 21st century isn't it Almost immediately after Charles' execution, the Scots proclaimed his son, Prince Charles, Charles II. Montrose pledged his allegiance to the new king and was given a royal commission from Charles to invade Scotland on his behalf. In March 1650, Montrose sailed from Sweden to Orkney with a force of 500 Danish and German mercenaries dressed in socks and sandals. When he arrived in Orkney, he recruited a further thousand enthusiastic but completely untrained Orcadian troops, recruiting them directly from a strip of willow. In April 1650, his army was ferried across the Pentland Firth in a fleet of fishing boats. Montrose had expected support as he marched through Caithness in the highlands, But sympathy for the royalist cause had subsided in Montrose's absence and he could no longer rely on support from the Highlands. The Covenanters had to act quickly. The longer they allowed Montrose to march through the Highlands and check, the greater the chances of him recruiting Highland supporters. They sent a ruthless and experienced Covenanting Colonel based in Inverness, Archibald Strachan, to go and harass Montrose's march through Sutherland. Strachan caught up with Montrose's forces at Carbisdale in Sutherland. Montrose was dug in behind defensive positions, impenetrable by frontal assault. Strachan only had 300 men compared to Montrose's 1,200. He sent a small group of troops up the hill to try and lure Montrose from his defensive position and, unbelievably, It worked. Montrose came charging down the hill straight into a devastating ambush. The untrained Orcadians broke immediately. The experienced Danish and German mercenaries held their ground but were overwhelmed. 400 Royalist soldiers were killed and 450 taken prisoner to only one loss on the Covenanting side. It was like our Covid death rate compared to New Zealand's. Montrose fought with reckless courage once again and had to be dragged from the battlefield. His horse was shot from underneath him, and he escaped on foot to the village of Culrain, where he is said to have dumped his armor in a loch. He swam the Kyle of Sutherland to Invershin, where he escaped north and west. Montrose wandered for two days and three nights in the wilderness with a twenty-five thousand-pound price on his head. It was like the the revenant. Except, instead of being tracked by a Native American tribe, he was being hunted by angry Presbyterians. And instead of being attacked by a bear, he was attacked by midges. Which I would argue is far, far worse. Eventually, he ended up at Ardvec Keep on the north shore of Loch Ascent. The owner of the keep, Neil MacLeod of Ascent, was in Dunbeath on the east coast. MacLeod's wife, Christian, offered the starving refugees shelter, leading into to the basement where she promised food and rest. The basement turned out to be a dungeon which wasn't in the airbnb listing christian locked up the valuable prisoner and sent word to her husband and runners to tain to summon troops to take montrose into formal custody taking an arduous journey fleeing a war zone only to be locked up when you expected to receive warmth and shelter Montrose had a brief experience of what it's like to be an asylum seeker with Pretty Patel as home secretary. It was the ultimate betrayal of Highland hospitality, a staple of Highland culture that states regardless of who turns up at your door, you must treat them genially and hospitably, even if they're flying for the Conservative Party. Montrose was taken south to Edinburgh, past many of the scenes of his former triumphs as he travelled through the Highlands. It was a kind of strange pilgrimage of past glories. It was like an episode of This Is Your Life, or at least it would have been if they went through the celebrity's life and then killed them at the end, which would have made that programme far more entertaining. He travelled on a Shetland pony with his feet tied underneath its belly, when he reached Edinburgh on the 18th of May 1650, he was tied to a cart with his hands behind his back and taken up the Royal Mile to the Tollbooth Prison. There were throngs of people lining the streets to see him, and usually the crowd would eagerly jeer, shout and spit at the condemned, instead they were completely silent as Montrose trundled past, which as a comedian I can tell you is far worse. He made his way past Murray House, which is on the High Street, where Argyle's son was celebrating his wedding reception. The wedding party came out onto the balcony of Murray House to jeer Montrose as he made his way past. Argyle watched from behind a half-closed curtain like the Wizard of Oz, and it said that he and Montrose's eyes met briefly as he made his way past. The following day, Montrose was interrogated by a panel of covenanting ministers. There was no need for a trial since Montrose had been tried in abstention the previous year. VAR had already decided he was guilty. At his interrogation, two letters written by King Charles II were read out. In the first, he demanded Montrose disband his troops, and in the second, he declared Montrose's wrongdoings. It must have been a real kick in the balls to the ever-loyal Montrose, but then again, Most Scottish people are more likely to get a letter from the monarch telling them off than one congratulating them on, say, making it to 100 years old. Charles had abandoned Montrose to his fate. On the 21st of May 1650, Montrose's formal sentence was passed. He would be hanged in public for three hours... Then he'd be beheaded, his head set upon a pike atop of the tollbooth prison in Edinburgh, his body quartered and limbs sent to Aberdeen, Perth, Glasgow and Stirling where they would be displayed above the town gates before being deep fat fried and served in the local chip shops. On the 22nd of May 1650, Montrose, dressed in a black suit, ribbon shoes, white gloves and a long scarlet cloak embroidered with silver, walked a short distance from the toll booth to the grass market where a huge scaffold draped in black had been erected. He may have been a Marquis, but he was dressed as Prince. Before he was hanged, Montrose proclaimed to the crowd, God have mercy on this afflicted land, and you know what Mr Montrose, he did have mercy because we haven't argued about religion or with the English Parliament since. (laughs) I'm obviously joking, God quite clearly hates us. Montrose's truncated body was placed in a box and buried in the Barmure where common criminals were buried. His niece, Lady Napier, sent men in the dead of night to retrieve Montrose's heart, which she had placed in a box that was made from a sword, which was then placed inside a golden box. Montrose's heart was a prized relic of the Napier family until it was lost in the confusion of the French Revolution. It turns up in the director's cut of Les Miserables. Shortly after Montrose's execution, the extreme Presbyterians were usurped and the government decided to fight against Cromwell and to restore Charles II to the English throne. The very men who had fought against the monarchy were now apparently in favour of the restoration of the monarchy. It was a George Galloway style turnaround in political opinion. In 1661, it was Argyll's head that replaced his rivals on top of the tollbooth after he was found to apparently be in collaboration with Cromwell. His political rival had been subjected to the same sad fate as Montrose. After the restoration of Charles II to the English throne in 1660, Montrose's reputation was rehabilitated. On the 7th of January 1661, his body was reinterred to a brilliant ornate marble tomb in St Giles Cathedral. Montrose was given the most lavish funeral ever seen in Scotland. His body was carried up the Royal Mile by 14 of the most prominent lords, and his tomb, complete with marble effigy and a framed copy of the National Covenant, still remains in St Giles Cathedral. A memorial to his great enemy Argyll is on the opposite side of the cathedral. The elaborate burial was no doubt an attempt by Charles II to alleviate his feelings of guilt over his betrayal of his father's greatest, most loyal servant, Montrose, the brilliant, loyal commander, a genius of the battlefield, brave and loyal to the end to a deeply, deeply flawed king. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a regular listener, you'll know at the end of each episode, I try and match what I've been talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. Then what I try to do is I try to raise enough money so that I can send someone deserving a bottle of that whiskey. And I'll tell you how you can nominate someone in just a minute. But basically, it could be anyone. I send people like frontline workers, NHS staff members, teachers, patient parents. It can be absolutely anyone. And the way in which I raise money to buy these bottles of whiskey is through my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon account. So if you've listened to the podcast and you're like, do you know what, Daniel? I enjoyed that. If I was to meet you in real life, I'd buy you a pint. Well, you can do that. You can go into buymeacoffee.com forward slash and leave me the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. You can leave me £3, £4, £5, it doesn't matter. Or if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you can go into patreon.com forward slash Montebank and you can give me the price of a cup of coffee every month. I don't keep the money. It all goes towards raising money to send deserving people bottles of whiskey. Now, today's podcast I'm going to match with um, Ben Nevis, the Ben Nevis whisky, which is a lovely uh, sweet kind of fragrant dram, it's got a lovely long sweet finish, and the reason why I'm matching a podcast about the Great Montrose with Ben Nevis is not just because they're both towering figures of Scotland, but I think a lot of the... A lot of the Year of Miracles, a lot of Montrose's most famous victories occurred in some of the most iconic highland scenery and areas. That we know of, really famous spots, and I think the one that probably sums him up the most was that incredible surprise attack that he launched at Inverlochy, where he marched his men through waist-deep, high snow to come down on top of the Covenanters at Inverlochy. Inverlochy is just outside the Fort William, at the bottom of the Great Glen Way, and that's why I've chosen Ben ne- uh, Ben Nevis. Obviously, it's a really, really terrific dram. Uh, it's clearly the only dram in the country that draws its water waters from the highest mountain on the British Isles so it's quite a special dram anyway if you would like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Ben Nevis then what you can do is when you're leaving me your price for a cup of coffee you can leave a comment on buy me a coffee or on Patreon uh, you can send me a DM on social media you can find me on Instagram and Twitter or Facebook at Montebank Scotland you can send me a DM or a comment or you can send me an email. And basically, I just pick someone at random. That's how it works. Um, and that's about it. Uh, please give me a follow on social media. I am on Instagram and Twitter at Scotland. I've got a YouTube channel as well, The Montebank History of Scotland. Please check that out and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And please, 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 if you do have a chance and you are enjoying these uh, podcasts, please like, share, rate and review the podcast. It really does make a huge difference and it gets me up the ranking, so it really would be appreciated. Uh, I don't think I have anything else that I need to ask you to do. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you all next time. Cheerio now! Bye-bye!